Traino Community Broadcast is on again. Hello and welcome everyone to episode 31. We're going to talk about Trinities. Don't know what that <laughs> is. You'll find out. We had one episode already. There'll be another one. And also, this is the last episode for 2021. It's been a whirlwind tour. And we'll have even better plans for next year, right, Brian? Totally. Yeah. Uh, so tr Trinities, I don't know if I, you know, I, I'm trying to do something clever where I, I mixed, you know, Trino and Kubernetes and I, you know, Kubernetes is just one of those silly names that like everybody struggles with. Obviously that's why we have KAS as the, uh, the summary, but, uh, I, I just, um, you know, I, I, I always I, I run out of ideas after a while, so I, I, I well, do well, apologize. Next time, next time, next time, we'll, we go with ban banitis or something. Like ban baniti, jeez, <laughs> oh, yeah. So I think this is a good enough one to to pull these uh, these the little thread of the the general gist is we're we're trying to basically I, we have a lot of people out there right that they they're starting out they they want to get you know up and running and so uh, I saw that everybody can kind of get started on Docker right. Uh, things are super simple there in Dockerland. We we have a, a shared network uh, and have all this like really simplistic uh, setups, and you just literally just run one command and everything works on your local computer. Exactly, um, and that's the problem. It works on your local. And your local. That is not realistic <laughs> for anything. Right? Like, how do you show? How do, how do I even show my friend unless I tell him, "Hey, can you come over here? I need to show you this Trino yeah, look thing." Look on my shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> and we can't even do that today because we're not in the office. So. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I'm sure you could do some screen sharing, but uh, it's just not ideal, right? So, so how do we actually then, you know, show to our friends, or you know, do some proof, cool proof of concept at scale, or even just like specifically, you know, the ultimate thing is like, you know, how do I show my boss that Trino is so cool, and we need to we need to be having more of that in the uh, in our tech stack. So that's what Trinities is is uh, this, this whole series, uh, and and we're this is not the last installment of this either. Uh, we're thinking through what else needs to be covered because there's there's really a lot to this topic. And so I, I knew it was going to be, you know, some number of videos. So we, I don't even know how many there will be, but uh, you know, uh, this, this time we're going to be diving into a lot about, you know, how, how do I now take this knowledge of, okay, you showed me how to use a basic uh, Helm chart on Kubernetes. Uh, you talked about a little bit of the pods and how some of the stuff's kind of split up a little bit, but you know, you basically just did what I did on, Docker, right? Like we last episode, we just deployed locally again. Yeah. So to this episode, I wanted to really show you like the, the power behind like what you actually get when you deploy using Kubernetes, uh, Trino on Kubernetes. Uh, you, you now have the ability to get some deployment on, uh, on a cloud cluster. Um, maybe at some point we can actually have, uh, hey, Damon, Damon, I always say Damon, Damon. <laughs> um, so, uh, so yeah. So, how do you actually get uh, that deployment? Um, you know, on your uh, uh, out on the cloud, or let's say even you have some bare metal clusters just kind of sitting around. You know, I think that might even be the next Trinity's episode. Is like, how do I actually deploy out to you know bare, a couple bare metal clusters that we're already we're already running, right? It's like, they're just sitting there. What, what's the point of letting them just sit there and not do as, you know, as, or they're you know not doing that much. Uh, why not just put them to work and and uh, throw, uh, you know, install Kubernetes there and get things up and running. So this one's gonna be a lot easier than that though. Uh, bare metal Kubernetes installations are 
a bit of a bear, and that'll be a more oh, yeah. advanced that's topic. It. But that's why you go to one of the cloud providers and say, "Hey, <laughs> give me one of those." Yeah, classes. Thank you very much. Here's so five bucks. <laughs> we're we're gonna we're gonna keep it easy here, and um and so this this time we're we're gonna be going to one of those cloud providers, and you know particularly uh you know by the data, it's the most popular one, which you all know, it's AWS. Yeah, uh, but I have to clarify something here. Um, and that's also like leads us into something else. So. Just to uh, understand for everyone, um, Kubernetes is basically the cloud deployment platform nowadays, yeah. right? Like no one runs, uh, well, some people still do, <laughs> but ultimately everything is moving towards Kubernetes-based deployments. Yeah. You don't do like hardware data centers and stuff like that. And even if you do, you put Kubernetes on top to make it easy. And all big deployments that we know of really run on on Kubernetes, and that includes our own Starburst Galaxy that runs in all the different clouds yep. and stuff like that. So um, this is where it's going. And you, if you're not into Kubernetes yet and you want to operate up applications like Trina at scale, I'm sorry, you're going to have to bite the bullet and learn that stuff. Yeah, and, and so it's kind of, we'll talk about this here in a second, uh, but you know, I, I, I do want to say it's like from a developer standpoint or even you know, a data engineer standpoint, you you don't necessarily like you know usually Kubernetes ends up falling under an ops thing. I, I've pushed I've myself pushed off learning Kubernetes for uh, I successfully for seven years um, because uh, you know I I really didn't need to know it. Uh, my my ops team pretty much had it, and I just needed to provide them you know a, a list of things, and then they would just handle the rest. Whether it's we're deploying it on the cloud, they were essentially my easy interface. Um, but you know, at some point you might find yourself, oh, I like maybe you're in a smaller company or maybe you you're the only person on your team that knows like even knows how to get this stuff working. So, you know, maybe you're, it's finding, you know, I, I want to use Trino. I want to show everybody that Trino is a good thing, but, you know, maybe nobody's willing to put a whole bunch of time and energy into it yet or money. And so it's like, well, how do I prove it out then? This is the way. And so we'll get into a little bit more of the details about that. Uh, but first, let's go to, a, uh, speaking of Galaxy, let's go to a little bit of a message from our sponsor, Starburst. I'm Colleen Tarto. I am the Director of Engineering on Starburst Galaxy. What is it actually offering? So, I mean, I, I think this kind of like builds on some of the open source Trino stuff, but is it doing a lot more? Uh, what what kind of pains is it solving? Could you kind of uh, uh, give us a little bit of insight on, on what actual pain this is going to be uh, uh, alleviating? Yeah, absolutely. And so to, to think about that, I always like to go back and think about what's the difference between Starburst Enterprise and Trino, right? And so I always like to think of Starburst Enterprise as the cool older sibling to Trino. It's a little bit more mature, a little cooler. It's got a, it's got a car. It's got yeah. some cool stuff going on, leather jacket, you know. Um, and Trino is awesome in its own right, don't get me wrong, but Starburst Enterprise is just better and a bit more grown up. And specifically what that means to me is that with Enterprise, you get more. You get more functionality, faster performance, more connectors, more security, better management, better integration into the ecosystem of tools that you already use today, data governance, integration, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but what really speaks volumes to me is that when you use Starburst Enterprise, you get Starburst, right? You get best-in-class support from the folks who work for us, and they know Trino best because they created Trino, and they're con continuing to contribute to Trino. Um, but Starburst Galaxy takes that to a whole other level, right? So one of the pain points is installing 
managing, maintaining, monitoring Starburst Enterprise. And so Starburst Galaxy alleviates all that, right? So it's um, a fully managed service. It's Starburst Enterprise as a managed service and more. And one last question. As yeah. uh going to be any free offerings coming up anytime soon. Is that on the road? Absolutely. We're building out, we've got a free trial. Um, so if you're interested, absolutely reach out to us. We are very excited about it. Um, and then we're talking about sort of a free tier. So like being able to just play around with it in your own environment and see what's what. We'll keep you all uh, up to date on when you can start to play around with Galaxy and Trino uh, for free for just a little bit and uh, get to know this incredible service called Starburst Galaxy. Thank you so much, Colleen. Thank you. And that is uh, Starburst Galaxy now, obviously live. We launched it really big at reInvent, by the way. It runs on all the clouds, all runs in Kubernetes. And just for those that I scared away early <laughs> with the quote about Kubernetes being tricky and having to learn it, Jan was chiming in, one of our fellow contributors and cool conspirator in the Trina community that he's teaching Kubernetes in the high school next year. And it is true. If you don't have to worry about starting up the cluster and all that kind of stuff, you can totally just run a couple of Helm commands puts around a little bit with with some YAML files and you can do it. So don't fret. And if, Brian is going to be our fearless later to enable that, right? That's right. If high schoolers can do it, we can. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, well, also, you know, I, I will I will say this about high schoolers. They are young, full of energy, and they don't have as many responsibilities. But <laughs> but you can still do it if you are in your 30s or 40s and have a lot of uh, uh, responsibilities yourself. So uh, anyways, uh, great. Well, uh, yeah, before we hop in, to all that Kubernetes fun, um, let's go over a little bit of news. What we we've had now, now that we're at a monthly cadence, I feel like this is going to be much more frequent. We're we're covering two releases. Uh, uh, I have plans, baby. We're going to make this a, a habit to uh, launch at least two releases. Just you wait next year, maybe oh, three. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> we'll see about that. But yeah, we got three sixty five and three sixty six out. Um, pretty rapid uh, turnaround there. It was great. Um, 365 uh, and 366, uh, I'll talk about them together since you wouldn't want to upgrade to 365 if 366 was already out. So, yep. uh, Cassia was busy again and got us aggregations in match recognized. Yep. Um, Huge. Super cool feature. Unbelievable. Yeah. And, and if you, by the way, if you're watching this episode, go back to episode uh, 23, I think it was, that uh, she, that uh, we had Kasia on and she explained all about match recognize. And this was one of the features that she mentioned back then. Hey, like we, we are working on this right now. We, we, you know, still in review and there's still a couple of things I got to do. So here it is. It landed. <laughs> so exactly. maybe we'll have to have her on again to, to talk about this, this part as well. Yeah. Yeah. She can blow us away again. <laughs> I know, I know. It was a really, awesome, it, right? it was a really head scratching uh, episode for for me and Manfred, and we were just like, "That's right, Kasha, just talk." <laughs> but we 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 don't we can't add too much to that. But <laughs> yeah, anyway. no, it's excellent. Um, not a cool feature. New SQL command. Well, not a new command, but now implemented. Truncate table is available, and not only did we implement truncate table as the command to be supported, we actually ran into a whole lot of connectors to actually allow you to, to use it. So that's pretty cool. Uh, talking about connectors, Pinot connector got updated to be compatible with Pinot 0.8.0, which also meant that we broke uh, compatibility with some of the old stuff that you shouldn't be using anyway if you're yeah. talking to any of the Pinot users. So We meant to break it. <laughs> exactly. So don't fret. 
it's just like along, iceberg. Great. Come along to the journey to the new, greater, and better realms. Yeah, it's, 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 like it's just like iceberg. You have to break compatibility to go move ahead, right? So exactly. Sometimes <laughs> that's what it takes. Yeah. Um, for those of you using OAuth authentication, you can now do that also across HTTP proxies. That's pretty cool. Um, many connector improvements again in the iceberg connector and also in the hype connector. So that was been good. That was all in 365, 366. The official announcement was um, to uh, have automatic retry of queries, which is pretty cool because remember in Trino, typically a, a query is submitted, it either finishes or fails, it has no retry. Um, that is now existing though, so that's pretty cool. Yeah. Actually, I, I did I did see a couple questions come up about that too. I wanted to quickly address too. It's like uh, you know what what level and and how do I turn it on and things. So so by now that that's turned off by it's it's supported, but it's turned off by default. And currently there's only one granular level. So this is some of the stuff that Martine was talking about back at Trino Summit, where we were talking about some of these these resiliency efforts that we have uh, to, in particular, fault tolerance efforts that we are uh, looking to establish. And so this is the first of many that you're going to be seeing coming down. And so uh, some some folks obviously are excited about this. And and uh, um, to to turn this on, um, shoot, I should have probably added this in the show notes, but I will add this in the show notes uh, afterwards. But there's basically a property that you'll have to set. Um, and and so uh, definitely check out the show notes um, if uh, if once we once we get these out. Um, and uh, well, basically, you you set that property, and I think it's a session property, and you just set that to query. I think at some point the idea is going to be that you can set that to task or even stage, and you can try at different granularities of of of, uh, of the oh, of, yeah. you know of the um, of the query size. So that way, if you right now you know if a query fails, well, you know you basically just retry the whole query, which is not super time efficient. But what the goal is long term is that you you know let's say. Uh, the the you break down queries into a series of stages, and then you can also break down those stages into a series of tasks. Um, yeah, if just the, one read operation on one worker failed, then let's just repeat that one. Let's just repeat that one, right? Because yeah. it, it's it's basically like a, a you think about functional programming. You know, it's just like we just got to restart just this smaller subsection, this yeah. one small operation versus the entire query, right? So that's uh, that's coming, and uh, you know what you had to do before is basically do this. On, on your own, you had to basically say, listen to see if the query was successful. And then if it failed, you manually resubmit, or not manually, but you know, you would have a process or a service that would just resubmit it until the query was successful. Now that's done under the hood. Uh, so that's the first step of many. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no more to come. Um, on the security side also, we got deny uh, implemented now for security rules and lots of performance implementations improvements actually when you look at the release notes, there's a large slab of uh, correctness and performance improvements in the general section, which affects all the connectors, but then there's also more in the Hive and the Iceberg connector. So there's just a lot going on. Um, that a lot of it is like smaller details, especially yeah. on the 365 one. Can I make a quick brag real fast? Uh, so no, my... we cannot talk about the elastic again, Brian. <laughs> so so before I have to I have to say this because it just I just love that when we are are making these small steps to move away from uh, getting you know these these little presto uh, uh, references out of our uh, system. So um, what we used to have to do in the if you look at um, very quickly, I'll go to the Elasticsearch docs. You go to the Elasticsearch docs, you will see uh, in 
the array section that you when you uh you you are oh it's not here hold on there it is so before uh we we had to um basically put this this uh meta object that uh pushed this value called presto in there um surprisingly uh this did not this uh, documentation hasn't been updated yet uh did i miss this in the documentation it looks like i did <laughs> <laughs> live on the episode so we'll i'll, I'll get this up, uh, documentation updated but in the outside of the documentation uh when you'll do uh it's it's cross compatible so you can still use this presto object but you can also use uh now and basically instead of using presto we now want to use make this uh in the meta object uh trino and what this does is it tells you uh at the schema level hey this particular uh, string field is either JSON file and another one that we have here is uh, an array field that is um, uh, that is basically a uh, here's here it is this is a Trino one and this is going when you have an array field you would say hey this field here is an array or this nested field here is an array so uh, you have to step that into something this meta field is uh, something that exists in Elasticsearch and so you stuff that into this thing uh, this object called Trino backwards compatibility though you can also call it presto still and then at some point we will deprecate out the the usage of, of presto there so that we can um we can ultimately you know uh just use trino in, in this uh, abject thing so just a small little victory uh i clearly had to fix up the the docs there but um it is a constant process to improve things that's how it goes that's right so anyways moving on <laughs> <laughs> all good Awesome, thank you. Um, and the other thing that I wanted to mention, um, there's another cool SQL feature with Truncate Cable um, was implemented also separate um, support for time travel. So you can basically run queries to some degree as if they were run at an older version or an older uh, timestamp. So that's pretty cool. Nice. Um, we got a contains function in that's also, I think, coming out of the uh, start of this galaxy work actually. Um, and that's basically allows you to check if uh, IP address is within a CIDR. So a CIDR is an IP address range. So you can basically do that, the whole sort of math of the four digit IP address matching and stuff by just running a function instead of having to like implement it in, in whatever select and whatever you would oh, otherwise yeah, do with huge. pattern matching, which is a pain, right? So yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, the other thing that I mentioned, haven't mentioned yet is there is support in the Hive connector to redirect to Iceberg, which is super cool because that could enable your slow burn migration over to Iceberg, basically, yeah. right? So that's that's pretty cool. And last but not least, um, for those of you that are on the, well, it's not really bleeding edge anymore because Java 17, the new LTS came out in what, September now. Mm -hmm. So that the latest and greatest Java LTS runtime is Java 17. Um, the last holdover to move to Java 17 with Trino running on Java 17 was the internal communication support for like the automatic TLS provisioning of like certificates and not matching all that up. That now also works with Java 17. So um, if you want, you can run Trino on Java 17 now. Uh, it's not completely officially supported, but we're getting very, very close. Nice.
Uh, always, always exciting whenever we, because there's like all, all these new, uh, uh, for particularly performance, and and uh, I know this opens up like a whole new uh, level of uh, granularity that we can um, start doing all these connections to machine code and all this stuff. I don't know if yeah. we'll use that, but it's just kind of cool to know that you can. Well, there's <laughs> also like, I mean, for the programmers uh, that are mucking around with Java, there's some tremendous improvements uh, that went into the Java as a language that yeah. uh, once we start not just running on Java, but also writing code in Java 7, like running on Java 17 is fine now, Yeah. but we can move over to run on Java 17 soon. Yeah. And then we can write on the Java 17 code and that'll be like unlocking some tremendous benefits in terms of performance, as you mentioned, but also yeah. just writing code will be easier. Yeah. Awesome. So, uh, syntax is looking more and more, I would say, like Kotlin. I think they're using Kotlin as a lot more. I, I'm not saying it's exactly the same. Obviously, there's a lot still still a lot of difference there. I really liked when Kotlin first came out because it was around Java, Java 8 times, you know, yeah. and, and everything you, you just couldn't. You couldn't uh, hide away a lot of these things, a lot of these, uh, you know, elements in your Java code, and, and it's verbose, right? That's what everybody's complaint is. It's just a lot of extra stuff yeah. that's that's redundant, and so you know, it makes the code really hard to read sometimes, especially on small screens and all these other things. And then sometimes you just it's just extra stuff for you to pay attention to and think about, right? So so I I, I agree there. Yeah, I, I hope that slowly, you know, Java as a language is is you know getting closer to a lot of its. Um, a lot of its uh, uh, kind of uh, JVM uh, family, <laughs> I would, if you if you will, um, and then yeah, Jan is chiming in with the multi-line string. Yeah, yeah, that is one of them. I didn't want to go into the details because there's just a lot of them. A lot of cool things, string yeah. is definitely cool because now you can just start and slap the SQL statement into the source code in multi-line, nicely formatted. Maybe using the Mozilla formatting style for the SQLs. It's actually readable in the code and you don't have to plus 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 or string builder or all that crap yep <laughs> oh god yeah oh string builder was well, yeah it's just in general all of that stuff is just a freaking nightmare uh and again well, let's talk about something city. else silly then maybe let's talk about yeah let's talk about if we, we this wouldn't be a a, a a podcast or a broadcast relating to java if we didn't talk about log for shell this wonderful incredible uh vulnerability that has come our way and flooded our headlines with all of the the latest scare so um so yeah, that's true. A scare. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, so I, I, you know, I, I have two feelings about this, right? It's like you want to be careful. You want to make sure that you know you take uh, things like vulnerabilities and things seriously. But uh, there is uh, Manfred and I had a conversation about this off offline. Is like we, you also got to be concerned about being too alarmist, right? And um, and so uh, one of the, the 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 headline for at least Trino is we had a lot of people coming on. Uh, incredibly concerned because you know they're they're hearing all these things in the news like the hackers are going to get you tomorrow uh you know and just watch out your you probably are hacked by now so go find out what where you've been hacked or something you know it's like this type of language and uh uh i, I remember what was one of one, one of the headlines was uh you know uh log for shell uh the the internet that or something that like stops the internet one of those uh, types of things, right? Yeah. And so, anyways, my so bottom line, like log for shell didn't affect Trino. We we did have one uh, um, 
uh, basically one log for shell dependency, direct dependency that we had in the Elasticsearch connector that we didn't even use in a code path actually. So yeah, we, we so got rid it's, of it. it. Yeah, it's it's like it's one of those things, right? Like um, for those of you that don't know too much about uh, log for shell and stuff, log for j is like a very very popular logging framework for Java application. It's super old. Uh, log for j two has been out, and lots of others are. Um, uh, like uh, available as alternatives and but because it's been around for so long a lot of dependencies that you end up using when you build a big software like uh, Trino um, they just pull them in transitively so you depend yeah. on something and then the next depends on that and then the next and then the next one pulls in uh, Log4j <laughs> and uh, in the tree world we didn't use Log4j already anyway so it was barely there it yeah. ended up being there on two connectors but what you have to keep in mind is that the class paths uh, and the run in the runtime in Trino is separate. So if you didn't use those two connector, the dependency wasn't ever even in the runtime yeah. environment active. So completely not affected. And then even in those two connectors, the dependency was not called anywhere. So yeah. there was really no way that that could do anything. And just and we we now released a whole bunch of depend uh, like small fixes. And what those fixes do is they remove the binary. So the security software that was crying about this being there doesn't cry anymore. Yeah. But it was crying as a false alarm in the first place. So it's like, well, whatever. Yep. So you know, it, so I think that you know. Be, be calm, <laughs> like maybe, you know, just, just like, I, I know that there are other systems that you have outside of Trino. So, but at least be, feel good that like Trino is, is not affected. If you are like affected, right. Just, you, you have to actually, you know, investigate what level that impact actually could be or is. And, uh, you know, hopefully, you know, you just, just work with, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, the folks at whatever systems that you're using, you know, work with them, but don't panic. Uh, it, we, we didn't have anybody that was going crazy on our end, but I, I just know that the tendency there is to, is to be like, you know, security execs go crazy and yell at you. And then, you know, you're, you're in this like stew because, you know, headlines are going nuts about this stuff. Just, yeah, and you know, if there is a fix available, you can update the dependency. You exactly. can ban it if it's not used. So yeah, you know, there's there's all sorts it. of things you can do to just like be extra safe, and which is what we did. What we did with ours, what you can do with all of your stuff, but just you know, uh, just just be be cognizant that uh, you know it's it's very very unlikely, <laughs> and and try you know do do kind of wash your hands. Make sure you wash your hands, but you know, don't, don't think that it's, it's going to you know, tomorrow. You're, if you don't wash your hands, like uh, the perfect way, then, you know, you're going to get disease and it's, it's, yeah, it, exactly. you know, <laughs> so, so anyways, uh, just putting things into perspective, uh, you know, it's, it's things to take seriously, but also at the same time, don't, don't uh, be alarmist. Don't, don't be uh, too incredibly uh, concerned. So uh, let's see, there's a, uh, there's a service that uses log per se to exploit, to, uh, to actually patch it correctly. Wait, 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 hold on, did I read that? The service that uses the log for shell exploit to actually patch it correctly. Oh, okay. It's like oh. a hack that uses the exploit to get into the system and then fix your system. It's like a virus that goes out to kill the virus. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a vaccine. You can call that a, <laughs> yeah, <so. laughs> a log, log for shell vaccine. Um, <laughs> yeah, don't rely on that. Just get rid of it. And, <laughs> and, then, and then it has a little call back home to do something else now. <laughs> um, cool. Well, um, with that, uh, I think we're finally on to the concept of the week.
All right, Brian, tell us about the concept. All right, so we're done talking about the brouhaha and the news. So uh, this concept of the week, as we mentioned, is Kubernetes. Um, so uh, the, the installment is called Trinities. Uh, I, I have uh, uh, various links uh, scattered throughout this whole thing just to make sure you know there, there was a previous installation uh, of this uh, or installment of this uh, the series. Um, and, and this will give you a lot of the foundational knowledge. Uh, Manfred and I really dug into, you know, what's the point of containers, actually? We, we really got almost philosophical about it. You know, uh, what, what, are, what is a container? Uh, so are we in a end. container? <laughs> Um, how, how, how deep does this, uh, does this go? Um, so, uh, it's like, uh, w what's the name of that, uh, that movie with the inception, <laughs> like how, how deep are we in the inception, uh, containers? So, um, anyways, you know, we, we talked about containers. We talked about the, uh, the kind of difference between wh what you would get with like a Docker compose local setup, uh, kind of what you could do with that, but then like the limitations and then, uh, you know, why we actually need an, uh, an orchestration uh, service like like uh, Kubernetes. So so then we, we talked about this one uh, object and we didn't really go into it too much, but basically this object is called a pod, right? It's the it's the smallest unit of that, that you can deploy on Kubernetes. And it's not what sometimes people may think like a pod is one to one with like a, a container, but it's actually pods can have can actually have multiple images and multiple containers running in them. So it's actually a, a not not a one direct one to one there. So, but it's not even that uncommon to have multiple containers, like one main yeah. container, and sometimes you have like what's called a sidecar container that like you know hyper apps or whatever. Of, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so then you have these, you know, these pods that kind of contain some unit of logic that, that you've deemed as, as the person writing these services that, you know, it, it all belongs together. And that pod, you know, essentially these, you, you, you deem that way because you say, Hey, this pod can, if I have multiple instances of these pods, you know, they're not dependent on each other. There's no, there, there's maybe minimal state that needs to get shared. And if there is, there's like another thing called stateful sets we're not going to get into, but you know, they for the most part, you can, uh, you know, the easiest way is most pods are generally independent and they can scale up independently. So one very good example of this is a Trino worker node, right? Uh, Trino worker nodes uh, are, are basically, you know, if you just add another one to the network and it gets added to the same uh, network and discovery, uh, um, you know, settings and everything like that, then, you know, you just keep scaling it up and it's, you know, and infinitesimal uh barring some uh limitations on your money or your or or your um, network <laughs> network or whatever so um so at that point you might just want to have multiple clusters if it's a network issue but yeah, you also yeah. got to be concerned about how much you're spending too <laughs> that's a whole other set of problems that comes after this um so uh so basically uh you know that's that's what a pod is right a pod is basically this this you know uh unit of of deployment that will basically be uh some some uh application or, or set of applications and sidecars that get uh, bunched together and will ultimately get to, uh, deployed um, and, and can get deployed, you know, ideally to be scaled up, uh, have multiple instances of these pods running. So uh, we, we didn't get too much into like how you define those or how you specify those, but there are these YAML configurations. And so we showed what those kind of look like last time with, with a Helm chart. Um, but 
I wanted to go into a little more uh, specifics about other Kubernetes objects that build around the pod to actually help you out with that scaling things up and how to manage, uh, you know, how you deploy something, how you, you know, um, do, for instance, how do you manage uh, upgrading versions once you have uh, some running uh, running set of pods. So I'm not going to get too far um, far ahead of myself, but uh, let's go into like what the next thing, you know, let's talk about scaling. How do you scale out a pod? And so, uh, you know, if, if it's no total indication, I, I'm sitting here uh, on this replica sets uh, portion of the notes. Uh, we use this thing called replica sets. And so a replica is basically just, you know, the uh, a second instance or more of, of uh, one of these pods. And so uh, you define a, a set, a replica set. Basically, it just takes the initial definition of the pod and you nest it within a replica set and you add a couple extra configurations. The primary configuration that's required that sits on top of that is a, a, a property called replicas. Uh, and this we'll, we'll, we'll see this here in a second. But um, you, you specify this replicas number and then that number is basically uh, sets this thing in Kubernetes called the desired state. So you let's say we we have a pod definition. So it's saying you know bring in this like uh, bring in the uh, X or let's say Redis uh, or something like that for the container. So you we'll, we'll make it one to one just so it's easy. We don't have to have more than one container in, a, in the pod. So we have that one contain one container as far as the the pod, and then we want to basically be able to scale that up to some number. What's the number? Let's just say three. So we we set that on the replica set. We take the exact same thing that we, the definition, YAML definition that we use for the pod, and we're actually going to nest it in underneath this uh, other property called the spec. Uh, again, you'll see this here in a second. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> the, the, there'll be this thing uh, called the spec, and uh, you'll you'll nest it under that uh, uh, piece in the YAML file. And then from there, that's that's basically all you need to do to define a replica set. It's pretty much just a copying over of your pod uh, definition, uh, which is basically just pulling in X number of containers. And then you have an extra thing called a replica number or rep re replicas is the actual property. And you say three. So then you you start that up on Kubernetes. Kubernetes is then going to say, OK, I have to I have here's the pod definition. And here's the number of replicas that I need to deploy uh, for, for, for me to meet the desired state. So it goes and immediately does that. So say it has like, you know, two nodes at its disposal. So it's going to just deploy, let's say it deploys two pods on one node and then one pod on the other node, right? So then you're sitting there in the state of, of the replica set and things are running fine and good. Um, and then all of a sudden one of your Redis clusters goes down. You're no longer at this desired state, right? Kubernetes is, is doing this like constant check to say, hey, am I at the desired state? It's three, there's three, good. As I'm at the desired state, it's three, it's three, good. And it keeps doing that over and over and over again. And then all of a sudden, one of them crashes and it goes, it's three, it's two. Oh, wait, hey, that means I need to deploy something, right? So it will then automatically, when it, it detects that that uh, replica has, has crashed, it's going to uh, redeploy that, that pod on either, either of the available nodes, really, as long as there's resources available, right? Yeah. So... So that is really it's 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 that simple, right? It's, it's simple and complex, but you know it's it's a uh, you know just adding in one extra property that's required. You could do more with it and get more complicated th than that, but but you know for now it's it serves to know that the required thing to know with replica set is that you're going to have a um, 
uh, a, a, a set of uh, replica or that, that number of replicas, and then that's the desired state, Kubernetes is going to try to meet that uh, as, as much as possible. What you have to understand about that is the, that it will request those resources from the cluster and the cluster just has to have them. If the cluster is too small or so, yeah. then that's out of luck. Yeah. Um, where that specifically comes into play is if you uh, use the other scenario, right? Like you talked about uh, one of them breaking, but yeah. because Kubernetes constantly checks that definition, you can also, as an administrator, go in, change the number to five, and Kubernetes will let the next check go, oh, yeah. suddenly it is five. Let's go and get some more, right? So yeah. that's how you can do the on-purpose scaling as well, not just the um yeah like and, and, and and with scaling too yeah that was a good point I, I totally glossed over that but uh these are the these are some commands that you could actually do so kubectl is the is the um uh control command that uh, we do to interact with kubernetes um uh, i think we covered it a little bit last one as well yeah. uh, a couple of these uh commands so and we we just deployed them but we did but here are a couple other uh things that you can do once once they're deployed so let's say you've already deployed a replica set so you have some definition file uh, called replica set dash definition YAML, and you want to replace, you, you basically can go in and update the file. Uh, let's say like you Manfred said, we were at three, we update the file to say five replicas now, and then we we run this command replace. That's going to update the, the running state that holds that replicas value. It says, oh, now I need five, let me upgrade. And, and it's, you know, so you can constantly change that, what that desired state is. Um, another way to do it, you can actually edit it without editing the file. Um, it depends on, you know, if you just want to temporarily update it and then, you know, whenever it restarts or, or does some sort of, you know, uh, cycling or something like that and pull, you know, let's say you do a, a deployment and it pulls from the, the file the next time, then you'll go back to the original state of whatever's in the file. But you could do the, you could directly, and maybe this is just something you do in a testing environment for temporary, yeah. go in and edit this replica set to specify whatever the replica set name, and that's that's defined in the YAML as well. And then you can actually like edit it, the instance, and then as soon as you save that, that uh, you know, you return from this command, then you basically, it, it brings you into a file editor, you edit it in the, the live one, and then it, as soon as you exit that com, uh, that file editor, it saves it back to, um, to Kubernetes, and then it updates the desired state. Now, that one, you know, you just got obviously to know that as soon as like it gets overwritten with whatever's in the file, then that that will overwrite what you just did uh, in, in memory. Yeah, so, typically, typically those sort of scenarios like A, um, you don't necessarily use kubectl. There's a lot of tools that yeah. present the UI <laughs> around all that. Yeah. And then you just click around in the UI of whatever tool you're using. There's like a whole bunch of them. Yeah. And, and every Kubernetes user will tell you theirs is the best one. Yeah. And the other thing is, like you mentioned, right? Like if you have a local file, those files are typically not something on your workstation. It's on it's some sort of CI, CD yeah. uh, pipeline with like, like with Git and everything. So yeah. Um, Totally. But for learning, it's great to muck around on your own and, and just understand. And just it's a lot of fun. Things. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah, it's totally a lot of fun. And and for the for the cases of like you know anybody following this, it'll be it's a good exercise to to play around with some of these things, just so you know like if you do get one of these UIs that kind of do this stuff for you, then you kind of have a sense, oh, okay, it's probably just doing such and such command in exactly. the background. Or if you get an error saying, hey, I tried to run this command and it failed, then you you already have seen that command before. So so it's, it's really is a good, good exercise to do this. Um, so let's go into labels and selectors a little bit. Uh, so we, we, we talked about, yeah, you have to copy this pod definition over and stuff like that. But 
there's another kind of uh, abstraction. I don't want to say if that's an abstraction, but it's like a, a, pro, a mechanism <laughs> uh, that, that uh, Kubernetes uses uh, where you essentially will uh, have this key value mapping on any object that's in Kubernetes. And the, the goal of these, and they're, and they're called labels, so I'll just say that now so that I can start calling them labels instead of always say key value. Um, so they, what they use these labels for is um, you, you want to be able to have, a, let's say, a human uh, come in and look at the labels and actually make sense of like what the intent uh, was for or, or where, where, where this pod came from, what the intent was when it was deployed, and have a couple like labels basically kind of giving you an indication of like, what application is this for? What what environment is this pod running for? You know, like maybe you have a Kubernetes, like a, a a shared Kubernetes cluster for like your testing environment, and it technically like is all running on the same Kubernetes cluster, but you have these logical environments that like separate out your different development teams or something like that. So then, like you you don't want to you know, mess with a pod that's going to be messing with another team's work. Right. So, you know, you could, you could do all these kind of cool things to, to, to logically group these pods by, by labeling them. Um, and this is stored underneath a property called metadata. Um, and so once they're, once these labels have been set up uh, and, and these pods, you know, essentially you, you put it in the definition and let's say the pod scales out three times, each of those pods have the same labels at that point. Right. Um, and, and so, so the goal, sometimes people think label is, oh, label is like a, you know, an ID I, I should put on like a, a unique identifier for each pot. Kubernetes does all that stuff internally. Uh, it, it, it dynamically makes unique IDs for all the pods and, and that's not your job. Your job is to main, manage the, the notion of a pod that grows, right? Not, not trying to manage each individual pod. You're trying to step away from that. And so labels give this opportunity for you to be able to essentially just dynamic, like dynamically group uh, a lot of these different pods that you'll deploy out there, and and you know apply different labels based on different deployment scenarios, different deployment contexts. And so uh, so that's what a label is. And then you can then apply, you know, then you can then round up different, you know, different. Essentially, you can do different like slices of these objects that are deployed out in Kubernetes. At, by by specifying different labels. So let's say you know you have uh, twenty pods, uh, and then there's five. There's four applications in this pod. So you know, and each have five pods. Just so, so you know, five times four twenty. And then uh, so you uh, you basically want to uh, you want to talk to all of the labels across this app. But each of them each of them have an, uh, a label that says app my app and then they have their own uh, a separate label that's like a um a component and one component is d database another uh, another five pods have the component uh you know i don't know front end server i can't think of, and then there's two other ones that have other component names right so you could either specify if, if you wanted to specify like a particular component to a particular app maybe there are other apps that have that db a component name. So you want to make sure that you specify your application name and you want to make sure you specify the component name if you want to only touch the, the DB uh, elements uh, for a particular application. And let's say for a particular environment, you don't want to mess with prod, you don't want to mess with anything else. You just want to mess with like, or, or anybody, any other team's resources, you just want to mess with your resources, right? So 
So selectors are a way for you to kind of, you know, slice and dice the, the, all of the pods out there in the wild on your Kubernetes cluster. You know, there could be hundreds, thousands of, uh, I don't know about thousands. I, I've never actually done a Kubernetes cluster at that level mm -hmm. scale, but, uh, you know, I can imagine there's hundreds at least of, of pods on a, on a Kubernetes cluster and, you know, to find the right ones, the ones you actually want to select and apply some sort of an operation to, you use selectors to make sure that you, you, uh, you, you hit those uh, correctly. And then you, you'll do various things like, I want to take these down. I want to upgrade them from this version to this version. I want to, there's, there's all sorts of management applications that you'll do, and you'll use selectors to, to find those, those elements. So, um, so that is how, by the way, how replica sets link to a particular pod. They'll link through a label and, and, a, and a selector. So, um, so that's just, uh, you know, uh, another, another piece to it. Then uh, oh, hang on, going back to sure. going back to that a little bit though. Uh, what I wanted to point out uh, in a in a tree in a practical example in the Trino world, um, as you know, um, when you run Trino, you potentially want to also run a Hive Metastore. A Hive Metastore yeah. needs um, a relational database, and the hardware requirements for those are very different. So yeah. what you would do is you would apply labels to the pods that are suitable to run a, a Trino worker, which is rather big, lots of memory. Um, mm -hmm. And then when it scales up uh, and you set it up to like have another replica set, it'll go, hey, give me a pod that is one of those big chunky ones for a Trino worker suitable yep. because the selector uh, is there, the labels are applied by the system. And so the big nodes will be used for the workers. And when the Hive Metastore chart or whatever flies up and says, hey, give me a node for my for my PostgreSQL database server, then it'll not get such a big one, right? So you yeah. can also very much steer the resources that are being used. Totally, totally. Yeah, I, I, I mean, there, there's a lot. So I feel like we could all, there's so many ways we could dig into, like there's, there's, Kubernetes is as small of a topic or as big of a topic as you want to get to. Uh, you know, at, the thing is, the, the most important thing, I think, to, to pull from a lot of the stuff, too, like we're covering a lot of things, a lot of concepts here. Um, I think the best thing to do is, is like try it out as quickly as possible versus like watching as many things about Kubernetes, because you'll see some things that are so advanced or some things that are just always beginner. And you'll you'll be like, where do I even begin with a lot of the stuff? Because there's just yeah. it says a lot of topics, too. So, um, so yeah, so I, 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 am thinking about like, man, th that made me think of another thing. And I was like, should I probably, I should probably just not say that because <laughs> that's just going to add more, add more stuff to this conversation. So, um, but yeah, good, great point, Manfred. Um, okay. So, uh, so now let's move on to the next one. Okay. So we, we're, we've now been able to scale up and scale down like pods, right? Like what else do we need? Well, then there's, a, a another set of concerns or, um, uh, or, I guess like uh, uh, actions that you need to take on on pods uh, that you know when you're when you're trying to um, do these management tasks, particularly uh, you know versioning, upgrading, uh, trying to do uh, rollback. Let's say, for instance, you you are kind of in the middle of uh, like your, your your pods are all up. Let's say you you want to change uh, from. I don't know, Trino three three five. What was it? Three six five to three six six, right? And you you're doing that a rolling upgrade for that. Um, you know, you well, sorry, there is no rolling upgrade for that in replica sets, right? Uh, how how do you actually? You know, you'd have to basically go out to each individual pod, take it down, make uh, go recreate it, 
and um, and and or basically have the uh, you would essentially have to take down the entire replica set actually, uh, and then bring it back up uh, in order for you to basically deploy uh, the the next version, right? And that's incurred downtime. So um, so what deployments allow for you to do is it allows for you to kind of do these rolling updates. Um, so since we have, you know, everything load balanced and everything, why not just, you know, if you have, uh, I don't know, they, in here they're showing some Python app that uh, in this image that I have here, uh, you have multiple Python apps. It's uh, like a nine or 10 of these pods sitting in this replica set, you know, instead of just taking all, everything down, why not just either, hell, you could even take half of them down or, you know, and start to basically update the versions. And then once the one half is updated, then you cut, take down the other half and then you update all of those, or you could even do it one at a time. Um, so these are, this is the kind of flexibility and capabilities that you have uh, with a deployment uh, object. And um, there's, there's more things that I'm actually there's there's a lot more com complexity of uh, of kind of what you could do with deployment, um, but uh, I I think we'll we'll just keep it at that. You basically just want to do various management um, various management uh, tasks to to your replica set, and uh, and you basically want to make sure you uh, essentially upgrade. I don't know. Is there anything important that I'm that I'm missing with if I just stop there, Manfred? No, I, th I think that's probably okay. okay. <laughs> it, it gets a lot more complicated when you talk about Trino and stateless, uh, stateful, uh, stateful versus stateless yeah. and stuff. But let's let's stick with that and and like see how you do some of those things. Sounds good. Okay, so I think the fastest and easiest way uh, that that you know now that we've talked about a lot of these concepts, like you know just in, in words, uh, a fast easy way to kind of get a, a better sense is to actually look at. Uh, some of these these workers. So let's. If you uh, I've pulled down. If you followed us in the last episode, we, we pulled down um, the uh, the Trino uh, Helm chart. So uh, let's actually look at you know. So so Helm chart is just giving us a template, and then we can actually uh, run this Helm template command to actually have it generate for us the the actual uh, the files um, that we want it to. Um, to or that that is going to basically be deployed uh whenever we run this so we see you know there's this deployment worker there make it a bit bigger yeah let me do that is that oh my goodness oh yeah that's better that's better that's there we go okay so all right so um so we have uh you know all these files so anytime you see this like kind of uh comment thing here this is just what one of the generated files here and then you'll have a breaker at the bottom and in the next file right so we have some things called config maps we'll get to that in a second um we'll, we'll skip over those for now so there's another one there's another so there's three config maps there's one for the coordinator and worker and then one for catalogs but uh put a, put a earmark there we also haven't talked about services yet so this is just totally out of order but here we are deployments so we have a deployment for a coordinator so you can see, you know, these are all these various pieces, and we'll we'll cover this here in a second. I, I just wanted to run the command so that you know how to how to find this stuff. And then we also have a deployment for the worker. And I think that's it. So yeah, so it's those those two. So we already know about deployments. Let's go ahead and dive into that. I'm gonna go into the notes because it's a little bit easier to see. Um, and let me actually zoom in on that as well. So I split this up uh, myself. So, you know, we have these YAML files and sometimes it can kind of look a little, be a little hard to see. Um, and, and what you, you can define pods, by the way, uh, in their own YAML file. 
But I, and, and what I used to think is I thought that you would define a pod or something in a YAML file and then just import it. But you actually have to have the, the full definition as far as I know, unless there's some way to, way to do this uh, otherwise. But you actually have to have the entire definition uh, ported into uh, the, the containing sets. So as you see here, you know, a deployment contains a replica set contains a pod, right? So in, in our definition, the top level here, the, the, um, we, we always have these, these uh, things in all of the, uh, in the Kubernetes objects called API version, kind, metadata, and spec. So that's going to be in pretty much almost every uh, uh, configuration for any uh, uh, Kubernetes um, uh, object, at least all the ones that I've seen. So, um, so you look at API version, that to me, this is one of those really weird, confusing things. Like you just have to look it up, whatever it is. Some of them are V1, some of them are apps forward slash V1. I think it was, I, I'm guessing that this is just some definition or some standard that uh, came out with Kubernetes and you just have to look it up what, which one it is. So I think for instance, pod is just V1. Um, I can't remember what replica set is, but if you yeah, look at also they're also updating those standards based on like actually breaking changes and stuff for that. So okay, that's why that's there. Okay, yeah, it, may, it makes sense as to why, but I was just like, you know, it seems like everybody uses the same one to, in, in practice. So I, I'm guessing that uh, yeah, the the these were the ones that ultimately got got you know adopted and primarily used in the community. So you just have to look up the ones that they that you know Kubernetes suggests that you use. Uh, and in this case, you know, like for instance, if you put v1, I don't I think it'll it'll complain. It'll basically say that there's no API version v1 for kind deployment. So anyways, so you have you have that. You'll just need to look up what what that is uh, and set the API version correctly. Um, then uh, for kind, obviously for you know we're doing a deployment here, and so uh, that's going to basically say what kind of object that we're creating. And so um, so the deployment uh, will basically have some metadata. And again, all all of the sub objects also have uh, you know you can have the option to add metadata to them. And this is where you can well, first add your name so that you can actually reference what the deployment is. So if I wanna, you know, uh, find out what deployments I have out there, this would be the name that uh, this particular deployment would show up. It's saying, hey, this is a TCB Trino worker. Uh, we'll, we'll see that actually later today when we deploy this out to EKS. And then here are the labels uh, that we were talking about. So this is, uh, you know, we, we have the Trino app, uh, you know, this is saying chart, but this could also be like version, you know, what version or which chart version that you have uh, deployed. So this is Trino 030. Um, release was what I specified whenever I created the Helm chart. I, there's a there's a, a, a name that you have to put for your release, and that ends up getting propagating down to these these labels so that it, it kind of, sep it's, it's yet another kind of way to separate one release from another release when you're using Helm. And then heritage, you know, what what created me, and uh, that would be Helm, right? So, uh, so we we did that through the Helm chart, and then uh, component, you know, we this is set in the template, so component is going to be worker, and uh, you know, if you if we were to look at the uh, deployment dash coordinator, which we, we could over in a second, that's going to be uh, coordinator, uh, as you would expect. So that's all things defining what this deployment does. And then I have to go into, okay, well, give me the spec for this deployment. Well, the spec is actually just going to be copying and pasting uh, the, the properties for a replica set. And by the way, a replica set is going to be copy pasting a lot of the stuff from a pod, like I had mentioned before. So 
I, I cut these out just so that you could kind of see the differentiations. But here we're actually talking about properties that was introduced by the replica set, um, but it's reintroduced in the deployment file itself. So here we can actually specify the number of replicas, like I mentioned. So here we're saying just create two Trino workers to start with. And uh, and then so it, we're going to specify the selectors for where, what we're going to uh, select to, uh, you know, what what uh, what pods are we going to select to actually replicate? So we're looking for an app called Trino. We're looking for the release called TCB and we're looking for the component called worker. And then in the replica set, replicas uh, sets define this, uh, have this property called the template, which is where you place your pod. And again, this is just, you know, uh, copied in from a pod definition. A pod has its own metadata. And sure enough, here are the three labels that, that match. So essentially these two have to match together for this replica set to apply replicas to these, this pod definition. And then um, once you basically, you know, uh, the, the, uh, get past the metadata, the spec is, uh, you know, uh, has a couple things. It has volumes. So we'll get into that here in a second with configs. Uh, and then it has, uh, and again, we're, we're going to bypass these secret, uh, pieces here, but it has the, the main part that you'll, you'll be interested in is, uh, containers. And this is kind of getting back to similar setup, looking setup to what we had with Docker compose, right? Like now we have these images, these contain Docker container images, or it could be other container, uh, type images. Uh, or it could be in your own hosted setup, whatever. It's just images, right? <laughs> uh, container images. And you pull them out and basically you're, uh, we're saying we want the latest, oops, we want the latest uh, Trino, Trino DB, uh, Trino type and, or sorry, Trino repository uh, image. And, uh, and then we're going to call this a worker. And then um, we're going to mount the Etsy Trino volume for the, to, so that we have the, um, uh, we, we have, we can put the configurations for that, uh, node. And then we also have the catalog configurations. And again, we'll, we'll cover that here in a sec. We then want to, of course, uh, expose container port 8080 because we want the nodes to be able to talk to each other as well as the coordinator. And then, uh, we have these things like liveness probes, making sure that they're still up. You know, uh, this is a nice extra level, you know, in general, uh, Kubernetes has like defaults, probably, you know, just looking to see if the the uh, the node is running and making sure that things are actually, you know, like the, the operating system is is running. So it has some basic live checks. But then if you have a if you know something specific about your application that's running there, you, it's better to have liveness probes, probes and readiness probes that that are verifying that these, uh, you know, doing an occasional ping to make sure, hey, is this node up? Is that node up? Is it is not only the node like operating system running, but is the actual you know application, application inside of it running? Yeah. So as, as you see there, by the way, um, this is uh, the default behavior and like the recommended behavior for those liveness and readiness probes is to use go via HTTP. Yep. And you see it's v1 info. It's literally the rest endpoint v1 info. And if you have your Trino running elsewhere, and you hit that endpoint, you see it's a very small message. And yep. that's that's the point, right? Like it has a very slow, low payload. It's very little impact on the server yep. to return that result because it's going to be hit all the time, basically, yep. right? So you don't want that to be heavy. Exactly. Uh, the other thing I wanted to quickly point out is um, further up, if you see where the image configuration is, you're saying image Trino to be Trino latest. Um, that's great for testing, yeah. but do keep in mind, if you do that in a real world scenario where you run an actual cluster, the latest tag in Docker, 
registries is a dynamic tag. Yep. So from one day to the other, if the latest tag changes to a new release, that could mean that you'll end up with a cluster that has different versions and stuff. So don't do that in a real world scenario, put our actual version in there and manage it proactively. Totally. Good point. So uh, the last thing I, I kind of, you know, well, not the last thing, uh, the second to last thing, uh, but easy, very, this one's a very easy one, uh, is the config map. Um, so basically config maps, and this we, we saw these over in the, uh, when we, we pulled these out, these config maps are, are uh, key value stores that has basically data that you're not concerned about. It can be in plain text, essentially. They're not, uh, you know, secret data uh, or, or passwords or anything sensitive, right? Uh, it's just kind of typically these kinds of config files uh, provided, you know, the config files themselves don't have any uh, sensitive information. So in this case, we, we have kind of, if, if you're not familiar with the Trino setup, there, there are kind of two locations that we install um, configurations uh, and, and, and uh, in particularly two directories. One's in the uh, forward slash uh, Etsy forward slash Trino uh, directory. And my selection has gone haywire. Um, so forward slash Etsy Trino directory. Uh, and, and what you uh, are going to put here are things like different node properties, right? Like it's going to be your, uh, and in fact, I just have them right here. So you have no particularly node properties. Uh, so what's the environment name? Uh, where's the date directory where the data should get stored? Um, plugin directory for where I, I find my, you know, dynamically loaded plugins. Um, JVM settings uh, for when I run, uh, when, when I run Trino. And then... Um, uh, config, particularly here, uh, take a note that we're using, this is for uh, a worker. This is a config map for a worker. And the only main difference between these, at least so far, is that, you know, the, the main thing is that, you know, when you're setting up a worker, you say the coordinator is uh, equal to false, meaning that this is not a coordinator node, it's a worker node. Um, and then the rest of the stuff is pretty much the same. So, uh, so this is one that, uh, like uh, the four files, log properties, config properties, JVM uh, config, and uh, node properties, all that get set in the Etsy Trino directory. Um, and you'll see that here. So mount path, uh, Etsy Trino, and then it'll say name config volume. Well, where does that config volume exist? Let's go up here. So config volume is uh, using this config map named TCB Trino Worker. Well, we see that right here, TCB Trino Worker config map, right? So that is how it's, it's loading in these, um, uh, these different uh, uh, um, or different settings. And then, you know, now we, we great, we've, we've configured the node, but then there's yet another uh, kind of directory that's called Etsy Trino catalog. And in the catalog, um, we, we want to, this is where we actually set up like, Hey, I want to connect to uh, hive, uh, um, data lake thing, or I, I want to connect to, um, you know, my elastic search, uh, Mongo, my or something of that or the other. And here's where you'll actually place those, uh, files, um, for by default, uh, and, and what comes out of the box is you'll have these two, um, You'll have these two property files that are uh, generated data sets, uh, these, these benchmarking TPCH and TPCDS data sets uh, that, that basically type data. And it's, it's a really good, like lightweight, easy to, to get up and running um, a connector that doesn't require actually connecting to anything or putting any properties like, like uh, secret properties in, in there. So um, 
So when we when you get to actually you know doing a real deployment, you'll have to probably do something other than a config map if you have sensitive information uh, in in these uh, config maps. And I think there are dynamic ways to basically pull out of of like basically secret stores and load those in. And maybe that that's yet another probably cool topic that we can cover uh, on the next Trinity's installment. So yeah, you can like just typically how you do that is you get a secret storage that injects those secrets into environment variables and Trino can pull up environment variables in yep. the catalog. So you just put those environment variable names for those secrets there. Perfect. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. A lot of, probably a couple of ways to do that. I think Kubernetes also has like secret, uh, like, but that's probably, yeah, I think the easiest way yeah, really, that's honestly, how is that, environment like It has variables. the secret storage system and that injects it into environment variable. And oh, okay. It up from there. Got it. Got it. Um, so that was basically what we saw up here, right? We saw these config uh, config map files here, here. We also saw the other one. This is this is the one config map uh, file for the coordinator that's set to coordinator true and uh, specifically says to not include the coordinator for data operations. That's really the only difference between those config maps, and they all get loaded the same way. Um, so when we have two different deployments, actually. That's really the only other difference for the deployments as well. If you if we go back to the deployment uh, part, we notice that this is the one for the worker, and the only thing that's really going to change is that the config map is only is going to basically change from TCB Trino worker to TCB Trino config map, and uh, and obviously then the component is going to have the, uh, the the different label to to uh, co coordinator. And the reason why that that we'll, we'll get to the last reason why that is really important for the coordinator and the workers to have those different labels is we need to create a service. Uh, essentially, we need to expose the uh, those uh, 8080 ports. Those you know, so we in order for Trino to work, right, it has to talk over port 8080. Um, We've we've exposed it. We basically said that for the service, uh, the pod itself needs to have that that port running, but we and, and expose it. But we don't have a way to map it to each other, or or essentially they're not automatically on the same network like you would have in Docker Compose. So I, I kind of have a spiel like that here in the notes. It's basically unlike the Docker world, everything's on the same internal IP. You you just you you'll actually have to set up uh, you know these different uh, uh, networking pieces and um, and so. I, I've linked out to a couple pieces that explain that a little more in detail. You don't really have the time to, to dig into that too much today as we're already a little over, which I was kind of expecting with this, but we, we do need to get onto the demo. Essentially, the last piece I want to talk about uh, are these the service uh, piece. And so services is that is this kind of way that you can actually expose you know these these deployments and these uh, replica sets and pods uh, objects as uh, you know, so now you have basically pods all over the place. How do you get them to talk to each other uh, as you know these in an organized manner? You know, so think about microservices. It, there's a lot of communication that has to go on there. And how do you get it to expose to you know some other service maybe outside of Kubernetes or expose like a you know front end port and all this other stuff? Um, well, ultimately, ultimately you want to query it, you know, right? So you need to connect from it from outside the cluster, right? Like with exactly. your BI tool or your Neutrino CLI or whatever, right? So you need yep. to expose that coordinator. At least the coordinator needs to be exposed outside the cluster. Exactly. So there are three types of services, uh, or, or there are more, but there are three basic types to know about. Um, two of them we're actually going to uh, cover a little more in detail. And then the load balancer one is, is for special cases of like, 
you know, you, you'll, you'll need, you'll actually need to, this, this will be something that you'll use with a, the cloud provider um, and something that will automatically be provisioned by uh, a, a fancy little tool that we're going to have to cheat uh, to, to deploy this out there. So uh, to, to deploy out the AKS uh, cluster. So we have cluster IP. Um, cluster IP is the default, uh, basically the default service that if you don't specify a type, uh, you, uh, you'll, you'll basically get this, this type. And what it does is it creates a virtual IP uh, inside the cluster and it can do one of two things. It can kind of expose you to the, you know, essentially expose you to the outside world um, and, and, and ways of like uh, basically making it to where uh, you are, um, you're, you're, put, you're putting this uh, one. So let me start, I'm trying to think how to explain this. You have pods across the, uh, all these different nodes and they they are let's say we're, we've we've scaled the coordinator because in our case it's it's actually a little different because we only have a single coordinator. Oh, yeah. But let's just say that yeah, let's go with this this uh, front end thing here. You have a front end and you need to expose that to the world and it needs to scale up to some nth level degree. These pods, remember, are not going to be on the same node. They could be across multiple nodes. So the first uh, issue is sometimes could be like how do you expose that pod? just to the internal node network. So there's two networks. There's the network inside of the pod and there's the network inside of the Kubernetes cluster. And then there's a network outside of the Kubernetes cluster. So there's actually three. So how do you get all three of these to actually talk to each other and communicate? So we'll, we'll get into how the pod gets exposed to the world here in a second, because that's done using node port. But, um, but the, the one that uh, you use to, to basically have uh, pods talk outside of their own internal network to other, basically to other types of pods in the, um, in the same Kubernetes cluster, you'll use cluster IP to, to enable that. And that's what we see here in this diagram. We, we see, uh, you know, one, one application called front end, uh, that can communicate to this backend application, um, through this, this cluster IP, uh, called backend. Uh, the the backend is is the name of the cluster IP is confusing in this in this diagram, but we'll say backend cluster backend service or something like that. And this gives these front end pods a one location to to address their request to or to to address their call. And then Kubernetes internally says, okay, this pod at at you know ten dot two four four dot o dot three, you know. It, it is requesting to uh, make some call to the backend. I'm going to route this to one of these three pods. It doesn't matter which one. And I know where all these three pods live. And this service just basically tells me where, where I can find those pods, essentially, or what's, what's the label of those pods and where can I find them and route that, um, route that request to. So uh, that's one thing for internal communication. And another, the same way that it can it can help you in, in for you know creating a single IP for thing for applications inside, you can also create this this uh, service to be something that can ultimately get linked to the external network. Um, the the right the the scalable way to do that is to have a load balancer to uh, kind of coordinate with Kubernetes and basically expose that cluster IP address to. The rest of the world and 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 essentially do a, a load balancing piece on it. We're not going to cover that, but that's actually what gets set up uh, with with this tool that we're about to show you. Um, but that's that's not what we're going to necessarily even uh, do today. So cluster IP, it's a way to group. You know, basically have a single IP address that is uh, or IP address or name um, that will ultimately uh, be make the 
replica set or the deployment addressable by uh, a particular name instead of having to you know know the particular IP of each individual pod. And, and of course, the reason that is important and, and, and useful is that way, the need to know about the environment is completely externalized into the environment and yeah. all the containers like the front end and back end containers can be completely clueless yep. and basically the same. And that's yep. what a Docker container provides, right? So that's why this is yeah. sort of externalized. And well, and further, if you're breaking, if one of these goes down again, right? It's not it a guarantee that it's going to have the same IP address and things like that. So the fact that it obfuscates yeah. those kinds it's of all like outside. instance details, yeah, instance details don't matter. It's just something that gets maintained by the Kubernetes cluster. Exactly. So then no port is the uh, the other one. And this is the one where you're trying to basically expose in the internal pod network to an external network when i say x so it's always interesting to say external uh, external into expose the pod network to the let's say kubernetes network and so this is uh basically making it uh available on uh a no uh, instead of making it uh available um by just hitting a particular uh let's say ip address of a pod you instead will will specify that pod uh, uh or the, or that set of pods through a a node port that you'll address to um, uh, you'll address uh, to that particular node. Okay, so let's say these two pods exist on a node. You can you can basically set up a node port for that will be uh, replicated across all nodes and essentially route all that traffic to uh, to this pod. And that makes the internal again the Kubernetes network to the pod uh, available without needing to expose it. Now. For our purposes, we don't need to do this one because we're we're not setting up some really uh, crazy custom um, microservices architecture. We really only need to expose. Uh, you know, we need to have the pods be able to talk to each other, and we need to have the eighty eighty exposed so that we can ultimately talk to the coordinator, and and uh, and you know from the outside uh, basically route those uh, our SQL queries. Okay, there's a lot of words. <laughs> and uh, let's look real fast at the, actually, did I copy the, yeah, here we go. And this is the service uh, um, definition that uh, that the Helm chart created. So again, and here's this API v1, right? Uh, it says, so you gotta, you gotta look it up every time. And so uh, kind is service. And so um, this has some metadata in here, of course, uh, it's not as, pertinent to what we'll, we'll be doing today uh, for, for the service, particularly to have the, the metadata, but it can be there. And, um, and then we, we have the, uh, you know, type cluster IP. This again is optional. It's the default, uh, but good to know just to have it there for clarity. And then here is where we have these, these three things. So we have the, um, the port, uh, which is the, uh, the port that is externalized on the, within Kubernetes network. The target port, which is the, um, which this is strange. I'm trying to think why this would be HTTP now. Because target port is going to be the one that is actually on the pod itself. So I'm wondering why that would be 80, port 80. This mm. looks, hmm. And then. No, nothing runs on port 88. Nothing runs on port 80. It's all 8080. Yeah, it's all 8080. So I thought, I, and perhaps that because it's a protocol, this is this could be. I usually yeah. have always used ports here, perhaps because this this could be specifying a protocol, uh, and it really actually is using. Because if you don't specify a target port actually for cluster IP, then it it actually um, it actually ha uh, 
like copies this it uses the, the the port one as a as yeah. the default so i don't know why that that is the case it's a 8080 and should also be 8080 but yeah. let's assume that that's just specifying that you want to use the http protocol and then it's ultimately going to use port 88 listen on port 8080 um okay so and and it looks node port oh by the way uh i, I skipped this out but uh uh node port uh is uh is the one that uh again you'll uh, this is a diagram of what we, I was talking about before. So this is the pod. This is the node. The service runs uh, internal to the node, and it basically uh, gets an, an internal IP address for the, the node. And, and it, so, and then uh, this is the node's IP address. Um, and then, uh, sorry, this is the pod's IP address uh, internal to the node on that network, uh, 10.22.44.02. And uh, it then maps it to this uh, port. So then when you want to talk to this uh, uh, from, let's say, if you, you know, log into the actual um, Kubernetes uh, cluster and you're able to, you know, execute commands from the, um, the not the master node, the, uh, uh, what do they call it? The, anyways, uh, the, uh, the master node, for, for lack of, I can't remember, the control plane, that's what it's called now. Yeah. Um, then, uh, then you can uh, actually run this curl command and get a, a, a reply back. Okay, so without further ado, let's go on to the demo of the week because uh, uh, we've we've gone into a, a lot today. Uh, this is you know very difficult. Uh, uh, again, a lot of a lot of stuff to cover. Let's talk about how do we get this uh, deployed on Amazon EKS. And so this sounds like this might even be the more difficult part of the of the um, uh, demo. So uh, uh, let's you know quickly just talk about what Amazon EKS is. So we've talked about we talked about the architecture uh, in the previous Trinity's installment where we talked about there's a control plane previously called the master node, um, and what that control plane is doing is it has all these services that does all this tracking and all the you know storage of all these you know uh, configurations and everything that we have and you know it's man it's doing all of that orchestration for us right um, and so uh, then the, there's the other side which is more of the worker nodes right. And so those those are basically the things that scale up. It's very similar to thinking about like Trino and Coordinator, right? Um, and so what Amazon EKS does is th that service basically abstracts that um, it abstracts the the uh, uh, the control plane node, and it uh, it makes that so that you don't have to manage any of the more complex setup for. Um, uh, for basically monitoring, setting up, and and uh, doing the the Kubernetes cluster, all you have to do is once you get your EKS uh, service set up, is that you actually uh, just need to do pretty much the same thing that we showed you before. You you run a Helm install, like you basically make sure that it, that your your kubectl is is pointed to the right place through your local configs, and you could just run a Helm install from there, and boom, like. It handles all of the crazy, like uh, um, all of the scaling for you, a lot of the uh, uh, management for the control plane and everything like that. Like you, you don't even have the ability to log into a, the control, the, the master node of the control plane anymore. It's literally just this hidden detail that exists on on uh, behind the doors uh, at at uh, you know AWS. So. Um, so this is really nice in that it takes a lot of the management of Kubernetes off of your hands. And now all you need to know is how do I interact with Kubernetes versus how do I run Kubernetes? How do I, you know, keep Kubernetes up and uh, uh, scaling up? And by default, you know, it, it uses uh, EC2 as your as your worker nodes. But 
Uh, you can also point that to local nodes that you have on premise, and you could basically just have the the control plane just live in AWS. Uh, so that it's maybe redundant or you have like, uh, you know, it's separated from all these things. And then you could have that control plane point out to on-prem or all these different, you know, any anywhere you basically have a node set up, you could basically point Kubernetes at that point, that EKS service to those different worker nodes. And then it's just more resources for your Kubernetes cluster. But typically, you just let them yeah. do the whole thing. Yeah, right? exactly. Like, I just, I'm just pointing out pie and, like weird pie in the sky stuff. If you want to have a crazy fun weekend of experimentation, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so to set up EKS though, there is still like, if you if you go to their page, they they actually by default, uh, you know, suggest that you do uh, EKS CTL, um, which is a tool we'll talk about here in a minute. But the before this tool existed, there's actually like still a lot of upfront like setup that you had to do within your Amazon, uh, uh, like a Amazon, um, you know, VPN and uh, making sure that you have the correct IAM rules and security and creating uh, users and networking setups and all this stuff. So you had to still do a little bit of like legwork to do all this. And uh, this all could be pretty well easily um, automated. And so some folks in the community actually built a tool around this because, you know, EKS being the popular, again, AWS being the most common and, e, you know, EKS being uh, uh, the common uh, Kubernetes platform because of that, there was a huge community that grew around it and just created this, right? Um, and it has its own, uh, well, AWS has their own set of docs around it. Um, they got involved over time, but but they have their own website. And so you just need to go to this site, um, and install this tool. It's just this tool to basically, you know, provision EKS. Uh, we'll show you how to how to do that right now. And this, so this takes away a lot of that, like all those manual steps you used to have to do in in, uh, in the you know Amazon EKS or Amazon uh, Web Services side. And now it just does all that stuff for you using um, what's the what's the thing? Oh, CloudFormation uh, uses uh, CloudFormation in the background to, to basically orchestrate all the all the yes, setups. Yes. Um, and so, um, so what you'll need to do to do this demo of the month. Oh, and yes, to the, wait a second, to the demo of the month. <laughs> Got to stay on brand. Okay. Right. So, um, so, uh, what you'll have to do is install EKS CTL. Uh, it's, I've done all three of these, by the way, through homebrew. Uh, so if you have a Mac, uh, I, I recommend doing it that way. Uh, but you can do it in other ways. So. Install EKS uh, CTL, install kubectl, and install Helm. I have the links all here in the show notes. And then there's uh, this one other thing you'll need to do. Uh, you'll want to uh, set up a credentials file. So this will be an IAM user that you will have to still create an IAM user and uh, basically set this in your AWS credentials file. So they'll have a key and an access uh, key. And you'll just basically set exactly this. Um, I didn't need to set the config file, but you can also set a config file if you want to use a default region. Um, and basically, that's it. You'll you'll set those into your home directory uh, under the .aws uh, uh, file, and then uh, you're ready to go. So here's the command. It's ekscl, and you could actually just do create cluster. Uh, and it'll just have a whole bunch of default stuff that they'll put in there. Uh, but I just wanted to show a couple of the common things you might want to, you know, mess around with. So we'll have name. And so we're going to call the name TCB cluster. Um, we're going to have the version, uh, which uh, you'll want to go to the uh, this link up here and see what are the latest uh, Kubernetes versions available. 
So latest one is 121.2. So uh, they they don't have the minor version there. So you'll you'll just put 1.21 uh, or not minor, it's a patch version. They don't have the patch version. They just put do the major and minor. And then um, and then you'll specify your region. I'm going to use US East 1 because I'm in Chicago. Um, node name group, uh, you can name this whatever. It's just going to be to have a group, uh, basically the group name that uh, gets applied to your EC2 instances. And then the node type, this is the size of the um, the EC2 instance. So T2 large is a pretty decent size. Uh, I, I did I tried doing it with the free tier uh, size yeah, just to see, and and uh, and I tried to deploy Trino to it just to see if I could get away with it. It, it didn't come up. Uh, as we mentioned, you have to have enough resources, and if it doesn't have enough resources, it'll just sit there, and Kubernetes will be like. I'm trying to get it up. I can't. I'm trying to get it up. I can't. <laughs> so, uh, so that's if you want to watch Kubernetes uh, struggle a little bit, you can do that. But yeah, T2 large should be good enough just to for for small stuff and playing around. Um, and obviously, you know, uh, feel free to 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 grow larger than that, especially with network and and things like that. And then we're just going to set up two nodes uh, for for this. And so. Um, uh, this is going to be not two, not nodes for Trino, by the way, just to be clear. This is two worker nodes in the Kubernetes cluster. So that's going to be two, it's going to provision two EC2 nodes. Uh, um, and then it's going to ins basically have Kubernetes installed onto those. Uh, it's going to use one of those like pre preloaded image. And then uh, I, I then you'll basically just run this and you'll eventually have a Kubernetes cluster that you can deploy things on. So I already did this um, because this command takes approximately, I, I said 10 to 15 minutes here, but last night it took actually like closer to 20 something minutes uh, to provision. So you'll run this, go do something else and for about 20 minutes and then come back and then your your cluster will be up. Um, I can actually- And a lot in what region, what time of day and stuff like that. So. Exactly. So I can actually show you from my my run that I did last night. So here's the here's the run that I did last night. And then this is roughly what you'll see. You'll see- um, let me, and here is a failed run that I did right before that. Hold on. I just want to zoom in so you can see that a little better. Okay. So you, you'll see, you know, the version and a couple other things, you know, starting in the beginning, and then it's doing various things like, uh, um, setting up CloudWatch. Then you're basically just like waiting for CloudFormation to set up the, the actual Kubernetes cluster itself. Uh, and then after that, it sets up the, the EC2 instances, and then it comes out of this, um, and here's a, a an important piece that I wanted to point out. You'll see this thing that says saved kube config as you know usersbrian.kube config. It's going to be you know wh wherever your home is, and then .kube forward slash config. And what that's doing is it's actually pointing you to those instances. It's pointing you to the um, the instance of of the um, um, uh, of the Kubernetes cluster, so that when you run kubectl commands from your command line, now you're actually talking to that EKS instance, and you're no longer talking to, let's say, you know, in the last episode, I, I was talking to a local node. So, um, so let me go ahead, and uh, so, so that's basically the thing. And, and then here's what you'll want to do is once you have that up and running, you can actually run kubectl.kubectl.get nodes. So let me run that right now. And still, I have these these two running on on EC2, up and running and and good to go. So let's look at what that looks like from the the uh, panel here. 
So we have an EC2, we have these two uh, instances. And again, this was my name that I said before, right? In the EKS provisioning, TCB cluster, uh, TCB cluster forward slash, oops, forward slash, uh, and then K8S TCB cluster node. So they basically just do cluster name and then uh, cluster group. Um, so, so these are both T2 large, like I had mentioned. And again, they're just running Kubernetes. They're just Kubernetes workers ready to take more pods from me. And then here's where, when I go to uh, EKS, here's where I actually see the, the clusters uh, up and available, right? So uh, what I want to do from here, let me, so I did the get nodes. And now uh, what I will want to do is basically do a Helm install, TCB Trino forward slash Trino version 030. And again, I did this already, so it's not gonna be, <laughs> uh, I, I, I forgot to take things off, but, Essentially, this is what the output that you'll see. Helm install TCB Trino forward slash Trino dash dash version 030. This is the exact same command, except for with a later version. This is the exact same command that we did to run Kubernetes locally, right? So all I've, all I've changed is I had to basically use this EKS CTL thing to provision an EKS instance. And then I ran the exact same, like, exact same command. And right after that, uh, I get this little thing saying this is when it was deployed. So it was last night. And, uh, you know, it says to get the application URL, run this pod name. So I'm going to rerun this because I'm, I don't know if a pod had crashed or something. So I'll run this. And what this does is it gets the pod, it gets namespace, and then it, it slices out these little uh, metadata names so that I can actually get the the uh, pod name of the, uh, of the, Kubernetes, um, uh, the Kubernetes pod that, uh, it's like the uh, the Trino coordinator pod. That's what I'm trying to say. So let me echo actually the pod underscore name. So that's the actual name that we pull out: PCB Trino coordinator, and it has some ID. And this is how this is how Kubernetes is is identi uniquely identifying that particular pod. So I want to talk to that pod, and so to do that, uh, I need to run. Um, a port forward. So again, we've had cluster IP. It's exposing it to the outside world, but we need to have some way in which to get it to my local computer. I need to actually have a tunnel that will go to my control my control plane back to uh, my my local um, my my local laptop. Now, the the other way that you do this is you actually have to provision a load balancer. I believe that's also another. Um, uh, that's that is another uh, option that you can do with EKS CTL, yep. and basically you just specify put a load balancer on top of this. Here's the here's the uh, options to do that, and then at that point you would actually then expose you know some load balancer endpoint at port eighty eighty, and then you can actually you know use that as your as your uh, mechanism. But I'm going to keep things simple here. You'll just use kubectl port forward the pod name that we just showed there, and then. Uh, map from 80 to 80, 8080 to 8080. So that's doing that now. So I should be able to now go to my local host. That's like a total misnomer now because it's not local host at all anymore. <laughs> yeah, right. It's it's my it's local local host, but it's just forwarded. And now this is sitting out here. Uh, it says production, but this is sitting uh, actually uh, the the uh, the response coming from the coordinator uh, running on uh, EKS, uh, and uh, um, and now it has two active workers as we specified, and uh, now I can go 
uh, you know, let me go run some query. So again, pointing to localhost, but it's just tunneling to my setup there. And I should have, you know, my two my two catalogs that TPCH um, and and everything. And so let me just do a quick query run. <laughs> error executed query. <laughs> What's the error? Hold on. I did. I it did. It did see whenever I uh, I pulled up the thing from DBeaver. Did I just? Where's Where's my user errors at? What's your query? I didn't see the query. Um, hold on. Select all from TPCH tiny orders limit ten. What did I do wrong there? I thought it was taking a while there. Just go and open up and browse into the TPCH catalog and see what's happening there. Yeah. TPCH tiny. Is it order? That's oh, orders. That should be orders. Huh. Let me remove the limit. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's going to return. Well, not that much. Oh, wait. Hold on. I have a feeling that this. Hold on. Let me make sure. Don't save. Let me uh, just open up. Maybe that connection doesn't do. Hold on. I just need to create a new. Um, hold on, local SQL editor, there we go. There. This is probably the one that's actually connected to it. I was probably on a, yeah. Yeah, you go. were connected wrong. I was connected to the wrong, yeah, I was on the wrong script and it was probably connected to one of these ones that are on the wrong port or something. This uh, local host one I have here. Okay, so so it's working out there on EKS. Very nice. Yep, working out there on EKS. So that was the demo. Um, okay, and uh, yeah, we're we're this is definitely going to be one of those longer ones, but we uh, we have just two more little things to cover now. Uh, but that was all in all, uh, yeah. And afterwards, last little piece here. Uh, you want to make sure you you know if you wanted to just clear out the Helm install, but you wanted to keep EKS running, you can run these kube cuddle deletes. But for my case, I want to delete the entire uh, cluster. So I'm going to run EKS CTL delete cluster, specify the name, which is not the right name. Uh, I'll have to put the TCB dash cluster. So I'll, let me go ahead and uh, do that. Um, TCB. And and then while your cluster is obviously up and running, you're you're basically incurring the costs, and then once you're deleting, you're basically immediately not occurring the costs. Yeah, correct. So now it's going to take. This is going to take yet again in a quite a, quite a bit of time. But yeah, you'll you'll basically you should see it say successfully deleted. Um, it also does cloud formation to to tear things down and make sure it gets everything. Um, but yeah, you you know just do a quick little check, make sure that your EC2 nodes are are no longer there. Make sure that the EKS node is no longer there, or the EKS cluster is no longer there, and then you know you'll you uh, will see those. Uh, those are the only really main resources you want to make sure goes away. Um, all of our Trino stuff automatically goes away because that was deployed onto those EC2 nodes. Okay, so with that, let's go on to the PR of the month. So I also up, I, so I updated the the notes, but I did not update the um, 
the videos that I play in between these to say PR of the month, they still say PR of the week. Uh, all right. Oh, whatever. Okay. So actually the PR of the month, uh, this month is, um, uh, talking about that truncate table. I, I thought I was kind of interested like what truncate table does. So I just did a little bit of digging around. Uh, and, and again, with this PR, uh, what's really cool about it is, uh, as Manfred said, we, we didn't just, so there's two kind of separate things when you're pushing out PRs is like, you have the first part, uh, a lot of times that's just doing the support. So it's usually either adding an internal interface somewhere on the core engine that like didn't exist before to enable that feature, or it could even be literally like adding SQL support, uh, okay. you know, something like, cause like otherwise, a keyword support. And all yeah. That, that hasn't like basically say, when we say support, it could be like making it possible is essentially what that means a lot of times. And some, yeah. some people have asked about that. So you say it's, it's supported, right? And you're like, no, no, no. Just because you add the support, like to make it happen, I guess you're not actually making it like you're not actually implementing the details. But in this case, you know, the, the support was added from a SQL standpoint, uh, you know, make, making the actual SQL statement uh, available in Trino. Um, and then uh, the, the, now the actual implementation was done on quite a few of our connectors uh, so that if you do it on MySQL, Postgres, MS SQL, Oracle, and Cassandra, uh, you will have uh, output that, um, you know, that, that roughly uh, translates to what, what is done if you execute it directly onto the uh, system itself. So um, what, uh, what was that? Well, I, I looked up what truncate uh, table does, and you said some another use case that I, I wasn't aware of it being used for, but it sounded like... So, so it's basically a delete all records from a table, but yeah. it leaves the table, like it leaves the, the metadata intact, so you can insert new data or whatever. Ah. It's like a delete star, like delete star from blah. So I thought that uh, it would still, I, I was saying, I, I, I pulled this one and kind of paraphrased from another definition I found and uh, another website that basically said, it's not doing, it's not using system resources to basically log all the deletes yeah, that it's, it's doing. Just, yeah, it, it's it's lighter weight than the delete yeah. star from, right? Because it doesn't have to go and look at each record. It just goes, let's toss, toss this whole thing. Yeah. Okay. So, so, um, so it's a, it's a basically a fast delete and, but there's, so you're saying, is there like, is it similar to like kind of hive metastore where it leaves some sort of metadata there that you would also want to clean up at some point if you never need it again, or it just deletes the data out of the table. So the table still exists. Ah, uh, ah, uh, okay. Okay. So it's just basically like literally undo, like removing every single row. Row. Yeah, it's yeah. a delete all rows, but it's 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 just not actually logging, uh, doing a lot of the logging and system. Got it. Okay, so very very cool. So yeah, system memory efficient uh, way to to basically clear out a table, and but you don't want to delete any of the metadata. Very neat. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for you you to Yuya, uh, you know, very well known contributor. Uh, he he's uh, you know always pulling in really cool features like this, especially from the SQL standpoint. So thanks again to Yuya for, for pulling that in. And now with that, let's move on to the question of the month. Okay, so this question of the month comes from uh, you on our Slack channel. And uh, he actually asked a question that uh, we answered in a uh, episode far, far away, long time ago. Um, so uh, he asked, uh, He's doing the system procedure to uh, run system.sync partition metadata, um, but they have multiple catalogs and they're like, well, wait, 
how do, where do we put the catalog in? <laughs> because usually, especially in Trina lane, we're used to seeing, you know, a uh, catalog, uh, catalog schema and, um, you know, table. So, you know, naturally this, this, uh, is a good question. And, um, we, we do, uh, I linked back to our fifth episode where we actually covered this in a lot more detail. So, you know, understanding some of the, uh, nuances here, you might want to check that one out. Uh, this was back also when we were presto grinded. And so, uh, don't let that confuse you if you're, if you're new to this, <laughs> this space and you're like, wait, they're presto at this point. <laughs> so, yeah. um, but the, the bottom line is you, you either need to set a catalog, uh, and either the JDBC string, um, uh, and, and that, that you're using to connect. Um, so that's, this is in like the U, URL that you use to connect to, uh, the, the coordinator. Um, you can actually do a forward slash after, let's say the port, and then you can specify the catalog there. You can also specify the schema if you wanted to. Um, but you would still need to specify the schema name here. So what this, this, um, uh, method requires is that you have it set in that URL or there's a session variable that you can set. Um, and, and, and I think this is probably the way that you'd want to do it. If you're trying to do it, like scripting it, um, or, yeah. or something you, you would want to, let's say, go over, uh, uh, a couple schemas and tables, uh, that you, and, and catalogs that you want to basically go through and delete maybe on a daily basis. Uh, you would set that in the session, uh, uh, and then run the job, run the, run the command and then update that session variable each time. So unfortunately, you know, like, I'm always wondering, like, do it make sense to have added like a catalog there so that you could just specify it and not have to set these variables. But, um, I don't know. Either way, it kind of it's it's functional, it works, but it's just one of those things you need to know. Um, mm -hmm. So maybe it'll be something we could think about in, in future to to make, make a, a catalog name. Or I'm wondering if there's an implementation detail I'm not thinking of that makes that not. Yeah, for the session useful. properties, when you set them, just keep in mind that there's two ones. There's the session properties that you set, and then there's catalog session properties, which is literally you use the catalog name dot and then and then it applies to that so and different properties are either a session property globally or a catalog session property nice uh one last little thing that was said a while back uh but i i wanted to think so jan also said the name uh for pod comes from bean pods which uh there can be multiple containers in a pod <laughs> nice so uh, always fun to find out these uh, containers, not peas, huh? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Two peas in a pod. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so uh, um, that's uh, that pretty much hopefully helps you all out with like kind of understanding, you know, how to get at least started with with a lot of this Kubernetes stuff. Uh, I I had for a long time been kind of uh, skittish about you know learning Kubernetes for one I, as a developer, you know, like developer, data engineer, sometimes you're like, well, that's out of my scope. I just, I need to focus more on, you know, the uh, data layout. I need to focus on, uh, you know, uh, making these, all these other things work. That's more of an ops problem. Um, but I think more and more as things move along, like more people, it's going to be more beneficial even for like the testing phase and all these other things to learn Kubernetes. Uh, I know it's like, at this point, it feels like, oh gosh, there's just so much. Um, and I'm, I'm also, I'm, I'm really it totally like, helps to understand the paradigm store, even if you're not yeah. ending up like totally specializing it. Yeah, it exactly. It gives you a really good understanding also, um, like how your application behaves in these, in these scenarios and yep. what, what it needs to react to. And, you know, like how to like that, there is a liveness probe and you need to implement that. It needs to lightweight because it gets hit all the time. Look, those kind of things you learn and. 
you know, it's pretty like considering that all the big cloud providers like Amazon, Google, Azure, they all have these Kubernetes services. Yep. It's pretty easy to just get an account, play around with it a bit, and yep. you don't have to run all the underlying infrastructure for Kubernetes because that is a tall order and I yep. would not recommend that to anyone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so I think uh, I think with all this, um, you know, hopefully this gives, uh, you know, our, our listeners and viewers an, an enough to get started. Uh, definitely reach out to us. You know, there's a there's a lot of things up and coming with our our our, our charts and everything like that. Uh, you know, on the roadmap, um, still a lot of internal discussions on getting things uh, kind of aligned on on how we're setting up our, that chart long term. But we want to make things a lot more uh, out of the box, a lot more scalable, a lot easier for you to get deployments running in Trino. Because at the end of the day, you know, running it on Docker or running a local thing is not going to prove to your boss that you should be using Trino versus some other thing. And, and we all really love Trino around here. We, we think it's, you know, going to be revolutionized how you do a lot of stuff with your data lake, uh, potentially data mesh at some point. And, and uh, you know, I, I think that it's such a crucial system on so many levels for interactive ad hoc stuff. And, and I think it just, it helps uh, in, in any ecosystem. I mean, once people exactly. start using it, it just, it, it, it grows and people just want more and more of it, right? Because it's so fast. So I think, you know, ultimately my, my goals with these is to enable you to, you know, get, get these up and running, uh, get, get at least one or two use cases, get, get, get somebody use, you know, a real use case uh, within your business to actually, you know, use Trino and showcase like how awesome it is. And uh, once, once that happens, I think it's going it, to, it gets a lot more catchy. And so uh, it's hard to do that from your laptop, but if you get it running on a Kubernetes cluster, it, it can scale up and it can do all sorts of cool things and you can uh, you know, impress all of your friends at work. So, um, so with that, uh, uh, we'll sign off for this month and for the year uh, and we'll see you all in, in January. Um, I, I'm not 100% total on the details, but we're going to be talking a, a little bit more about this uh, uh, granular fault tolerance and retries and all, all this other fun stuff uh, with uh, one of our newer contributors, Andre Rosa. So uh, really excited to hear from him and uh, uh, look forward to that, uh, that episode. So I'll see you all in uh, the next month and uh, you all take care. And have a good and happy holidays. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And by the way, promise from my end, we are not renaming the project again like last year. Yes. <laughs> please, <laughs> please, God, let's never rename the project again. <laughs> all right. All the way, Commander Bunbury. Go, go. That's <laughs> yes, right. All right. Take care, everyone. Bye. Music for the show is from the Mega Man 6 gameplay album by Shishtaf Swabikowski. Don't forget to give us a star on the Trino repository at github.com forward slash TrinoDB forward slash Trino. And for more information on future shows and to find show notes, check out trino.io forward slash broadcast.